From Cobalt Headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my good friend and colleague, Rock Lambros. Rock and I met at the very beginning of my career in security at eBay. Among many other things, Rock established eBay's Security Operations Center and led the security team on the technology integration of mergers and acquisitions, including Skype and Shopping.com. Rock has actually served in security roles for several global multi-billion dollar companies, including Marathon Petroleum, Honeywell, General Dynamics, Wells Fargo, and Agilent. He built security programs from the ground up in industries with vastly different security and privacy requirements and oversaw multi-million dollar security budgets. Rock has led successful defenses against highly publicized denial of service attacks and built and managed large security and network operation centers. Rock, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Caroline. Great talking to you. Great. Uh, thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. So, Rock, I really want to kick things off and say, because it's actually a story I don't even know myself, how did you find yourself working in security? <laughs> yeah, you know what? A lot of people ask me that, and it's going to sound very cliche-ish, but it's true. It was after the attacks on 9-11. Uh, I was actually a database developer, uh, DBA, at a startup in Las Vegas at the time. So, yes, I grew up in Vegas, insert Vegas jokes here. And somehow I had the epiphany, which was probably one of the only ones in my life, that the next battleground was going to be in cyberspace. Uh, I started focusing on database security and was the technical editor on a publication released by SAMS called Oracle Step-by-Step. And then from there, I kind of moved on to another smaller startup uh, in the Phoenix area and built their information security program. Then I moved to more of the network and security operations roles with companies such as Wells Fargo, Honeywell, and eBay, where uh, I really learned a lot and had the pleasure of working with some of the smartest people I've ever worked with, in, including yourself, obviously. Um, moved on to run the SOC for a large federal entity, which also included a bunch of GRC work. And then most recently, I had the privilege of building and leading the information security program for Marquis Energy, where I also got to focus on uh, OT, operational technology, so industrial control systems such as SCADA right, and the such. Uh, Mark West has since been acquired by Marathon Petroleum and is now known as MPLX. Uh, now I have decided to take all those years of expertise and just call it expertise anyways. When I met you, <laughs> I had hair and no gray, and now I'm bald and my beard is more gray than black, so you can draw your own conclusions, but that probably dates us. And I've started my, anyways, I've started my own cybersecurity consulting company. Uh, called Rock Cyber, which focuses on aligning cybersecurity programs to enterprise business goals. So I really want to pivot the conversation away from cybersecurity being the department of no, to showing that by focusing on an organization's key financial metrics, we can absolutely be business enablers. This translates to organizations across all verticals and operating models, whether it be IT, OT, cloud, IoT, oil and gas, uh, other energy, e-commerce, retail, anything like that. You know, I think it's so interesting that the events on 9-11 were something that kind of inspired you to become active in this field. Do you remember where you were and what you were doing on that day? 
100%. I was still living uh, with my parents in Vegas, working for that startup. Uh, my alarm goes off in the morning. Uh, I get up, hopping in the shower to, to go to work, and my dad is just screaming, uh, we're under attack, we're under attack. And, you know, I'm uh, back then, especially uh, in my mid-20s, early 20s, rather, uh, I was not a morning person, right? So I'm like, what are you talking about? Right, just stumble, kind of stumbling to the TV, and it's like, you know, holy crap, a plane just flew into the Twin Towers, and I turned on the TV just as the second plane was hitting. Um, and then actually got to work that day, and we rigged up an antenna through the false ceiling to the roof of the building that we were in uh, to get TV coverage. Uh, and we and we pretty much sat there and watched it all day, right? We didn't we didn't work a lick. Just sat there and watched it all day and just in shock, just an absolute shock. And just uh, kind of experiencing that, you know, on the viewer side, right? Experiencing that fog of war with all the different varying news reports and accounts and, you know, what was going on, what was what. I mean, not much has changed, right? The media still gets a little crazy uh, whenever there are incidents in the world like that, terrorist type of incidents, right? There's just that fog of war. And that was, that was my first true exposure to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just hearing you talk about it brings me back to that day too. How did you, you know, was there something that was like an indicator to you? Like, Hey, this was a, this was a physical attack, you know, but, but cyber is kind of going to be the next thing. How did you, how did you come across that idea? Yeah, it was, um, Honestly, it was more from the perspective of how many companies went out of business as a result of 9-11 because they didn't have good continuity plans. So I started looking at it from that perspective. And then as I was kind of drilling down from almost a, a resiliency, a business resiliency perspective, I kind of realized, well, crap, what's going to happen if the power grid goes down? What's going to happen if the financial system is impacted, right? That impacts uh, millions of people right, in one fell swoop versus, you know, these kind of attacks. Yes, New York and the Pentagon and Pennsylvania were absolutely terrible, right? Over 3,000 people lost their lives. But you start, you know, you start preventing people from getting money out of their ATMs and you cause mal you start causing mass hysteria, right? I mean, the, you know, society would devolve pretty quickly if there is no power, no access to, to liquid funds. So that's kind of how I, my brain started going down that path. And since I was in the database world at the time, the easiest transition for me was to, okay, let's really focus on data security, on database security. And that's kind of what kicked it all off. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, to me, and especially hearing this story now, you've always been such like a big picture, like big impact kind of guy. You know, you have had all of this different experience in these like large scale environments, you know, electronic commerce and government and banking and energy and manufacturing. And, you know, for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about what's it like to be in information security at a multi-billion dollar organization? I mean, that's like, that's like a whole level of scale that's very different from anything and everything that's smaller than that. Yeah. So the good thing is, you know, working on large matrix organizations, right? Vastly different 
security privacy requirements. Uh, you know, specifically eBay taught me operational excellence and how to do things at scale, right? And then the federal government taught me how to build bureaucracy. And this has given me a lot of experience in dealing, I guess, with the quote unquote soft side of cybersecurity, uh, which is dealing with the bureaucracy and quite frankly, selling it to the business, right? So you have to, uh, I'm a big proponent of partnering with the business and I think we do a horrible job at that as an industry as a whole. Uh, I think to be a cybersecurity leader in today's corporate environment, you have to have an entrepreneurial spirit and you're always pitching to quote unquote investors, right? So your investors in this case would be the executive leadership team and or the board. So it's almost like being on the show Shark Tank minus the cool factor, right? And then put that up against the, I guess the juxtaposition that while being an entrepreneur, which many people imply to be lean and agile and get stuff done, you must also still, you know, deal with the bureaucracy and the processes and procedures that are placed are the quote unquote red tape that come with large organizations. So it's really taught me the large organization piece has really taught me more about the soft side of cybersecurity than anything. That's that's very cool. I think, you know, one of the things that was surprising to me as I began to work in the security field was you know, I'm hired on at eBay. Brianna Gamp is my first manager. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she's like, here's the job we've got to do, you know, and in all my stakeholder meetings, you know, I'm meeting with folks in customer support, I'm meeting with folks in operations. And there's this resistance that as a junior security person, I didn't understand. I didn't understand that my goals were in some cases somewhat in conflict with a lot of the technology stakeholders that I, were, I was dealing with. I mean, I won't, I won't name names. Uh, this person <laughs> I'm referring to is actually uh, still, you know, a colleague and a friend of mine, but, but there is a time at eBay when I was talking to one of the infrastructure leaders of, of one of the very large subsidiaries of eBay, and I'm trying to convince this guy that we have to establish trust zones and we've got to separate the front end from the back end of this very important application. Uh, and oh, it's you're, like, gonna, you're triggering a PTSD <laughs> And it's like, why is it that I have to kind of like try so hard? And, it, and it's interesting, right? I mean, the, the analogy that I'll say to folks sometimes is if you've got $10,000 to do a home addition, and you're trying to decide between building a new deck and building a fence around your home, you know, you're going to imagine, you know, drinking wine and enjoying a sunset on that deck. And if you think about your fence, you're like, well, you know, it feels as though nothing's going to change. So that was something that was, that was really kind of confusing to me. And it took me a long time to kind of figure out how to, how to properly navigate that. So Rock, today, you know, you, you've got this tremendous sort of breadth of experience, right? So you're at the biggest firms in the world, many heavily involved in critical infrastructure. And at the same time, you've taken that expertise and you're now in the position of ad uh, advising startups and small businesses. What are some of the things that a small business needs to worry about from a security perspective that maybe is very, very different from a multi-billion dollar organization? 
Yeah, so that's an interesting question because startups and SMBs, they approach cybersecurity differently, right? So larger organizations tend to focus on securing the data and small companies tend to be more tactical and focus on things like securing the endpoint, right? Let's, you know, let's, you know, slap on antivirus and maybe a, a firewall and, and we're good, right? The irony though, is that they're just as much at risk, if not more at risk than larger organizations. So startups and small businesses, uh, they have just as large of a digital footprint today as the quote unquote big boys, right? But many small business owners think, why do I need to invest in cybersecurity? Doesn't the cloud do that for me? The magical, mystical cloud? Uh, you know, the 2017 Verizon breach report actually stated that 61% of data breach victims were small businesses. So sure, the big, the big breaches, right, get all the media attention, but those non-publicized breaches are really where the money is for the attackers, right? Yeah. Sadly, small businesses are also usually not in a position where they can absorb those losses like a large enterprise can. Uh, I think it was the U.S. National, US National Cybersecurity Alliance uh, put out a study that said 60% of small companies are unable to, to sustain their business more than six months following a cyber attack. Mm. They just don't have the resources, right? So think about it. One of the biggest challenges for small businesses is building their brand and building their trust with their customer base. Once that trust is broken, it's almost impossible for them to recover that. However, people still shop at the large enterprises that have had breaches. Look at Target, look at Home Depot, right? Their brands are established and their customer bases are loyal, but that was built over decades. Uh, additionally, you know, if you think about it, one of the biggest challenges in any effective cybersecurity program, small business or big business, is the effective allocation and prioritization of resources and dollars to cybersecurity. Small businesses cannot afford to make mistakes when making those significant investments and commitments. Larger organizations and or government entities can just eat, that, eat the sunk cost, typically, and move on. And God knows that's all the government does, right, is spend money, sink the cost, and move on. But unfortunately, small businesses, they just don't have that luxury. Yeah. I, I think that my first experience getting some insight into, you know, what it's like to try and allocate and prioritize resources for a small business was, was actually not a small business, it was actually my interaction with some of the smaller subsidiaries at eBay. At the time that, that we were there, there were probably about two dozen or so uh, yeah. what were called like adjacencies at the time, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Dave Cullinan and I would go and, and talk to the CTOs at these smaller companies, which were really startups that had recently been acquired and say, hey, you know, we want to tell you about eBay's corporate global information security program. You know, we want to help you adopt some of these practices. And I remember one of the CTOs in particular, this guy's now leading security actually at a healthcare company in San Francisco. I'll see if I can get him on the podcast one of these days. He says to me, Caroline, I understand what you're trying to do, and I think it's a good idea. And he said, just make this easy for me. Tell me the bare minimum that I need to do, and I'll do it. But I can't afford to do more than that. And so, Rock, from your perspective, what are like one or two or three of the bare minimum things that a small business or a startup should be thinking about when it comes to security? Yeah, so... 
it's a great question. Another great question, right? So it ultimately that depends, right? It depends on what business they're in. So, you know, I'm going to steal this term from a friend of mine, Laz, you know, it's, it's where is their risk to revenue, right? So, and that's where you want to focus your dollars. And that seems easier said than done, right? But really it's all about kind of that. I actually like the NIST CSF framework, not that small businesses have to go in and do a NIST CSF uh, framework gap assessment and start implementing all those controls and everything, but it breaks it down right into digestible chunks, right? Identify your assets. So identify the systems that are most important to whatever's generating your revenue, protect those assets, right? So whether that be endpoint protection, network segmentation, DLP, right? Depending on, on the type of, of, of transactions taking place or the type of mitigating controls that you need to put in, into place. Uh, you want some sort of method to detect incidents, right? I'm not saying you have to have a 24 by 7 security operation center, but you have to have visibility into the environment. You have to have proper logging. Right? That's basic locking and tackling. You want to be able to respond with a plan, right? So what are you going to do if you think you have been breached or if you think you have had a security incident? Whether it's uh, a simple annoying malware or it's ransomware, right? And now all your critical data is encrypted and being held for ransom. What are you going to do about it? Have those plans in place first. Um, because going back to the fog of war analogy, when that happens, people are scrambling, right? It's much easier to follow a plan when it's down on paper. And then how do you recover back to normal operations? Yeah. Right? Do you have, you know, maybe you're a startup and you don't have uh, high availability DR capabilities, right? How do, you how do you recover to normal operations? So I have all those kind of systems in place first, and then you can start to drill down into, you know, specific tactical technologies and mitigations that you can put into place. But, you know, there's, I mean, I think we can agree that there's some foundational things that you should have, right? Endpoint detection and response, right? Anti-malware, antivirus, whatever you want to call it today. Some basic network segmentation, access controls, right? Identity access management type of access controls. And then we could go from there, right? Are you subject to any regulatory requirements, right? Whether PCI, HIPAA, whatever. And then drill down from there. Cool. That makes a ton of sense. And, and especially, you know, something that resonates so strongly with me is I think for a startup and a small business, it is really critical to have some logging, have some transparency and be ready to respond, right? Because if you're kind of like getting started and you don't yet have all the security controls in place that you would like to, you know, a year or maybe yeah. even three or five years from now, then you've got to be ready to respond and you've got to equip yourself with some basic data, at the very least, some decent asset management. Um, I think that's very good advice, Rock. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have visibility into the environment, then you don't know what you don't know, right? At least if you've got some visibility into the environment, then you know what you don't know, right? And then you can uh, plan accordingly. Yep. You know, with regards to visibility in the environment, of course, you know, a lot of our conversation that we've been having right now has really centered on the scenario where 
you know, you and I are security professionals and we're working at an organization and we're working hard to secure that organization. Uh, one of the cool things that you've done in your career is you've been very involved in mergers and acquisition scenarios where, yeah. you know, uh, whether you're on the acquirer side, you know, and, and you need to get some visibility into what's going on to this part of your business that you're taking on, um, or even as a company that's going to be acquired, you know, there are security considerations uh, to think about. So what is that, what does that look like, you know, for our listeners who maybe have never been a part of that um, and, and don't have any insight into that world? Yeah, so this could honestly be a podcast probably in and of itself, so I'll try and keep it here and <laughs> in the time that we have left. So uh, there's a lot of, just, just pick up the Wall Street Journal, there's a lot of M&A activity happening today. All right, so cybersecurity due diligence as part of the M&A process, it's becoming more and more paramount. Uh, the most visible, uh, I guess, thing event that happened as a result of a cybersecurity incident during an M&A process was Verizon's acquisition of Yahoo and how that went down. Right after details emerged about Yahoo's massive data breach where all three billion of their accounts were impacted, uh, Verizon lowered its proposed purchase price by $350 million. Right, that's not insignificant. Uh, so if you're on the acquiring side, you have to have an understanding of the breadth and scope of you know the acquiree's cybersecurity function. So M&A, is all about the business, right? And cybersecurity must have a relationship with the business. As I, as I mentioned earlier, I think we are very broken when it comes to that. Most organizations still believe that cybersecurity risk is a technical risk and not an enterprise business risk, which couldn't be further from the truth in my opinion. Um, this goes back to me earlier when I'm saying to be a successful leader, you have to have an entrepreneurial spirit. You have to be selling it within the business. You have to have those business partnerships. So. Getting back to the M&A question, sorry, a little rant there. Uh, you start uh, with a SWOT analysis of the organization that you're acquiring. This actually gives you kind of an outline of the strategic things that you'll need to focus on. You can also supplement like this effort by running passive scans, right, non-intrusive scans of the external environment of the entity in question. Uh, you could get an inventories, an inventory of that entity's assets by using discovery services. There are discovery services out there that will help you uh, enumerate those assets. You can also utilize there are a bunch of companies popping up now, you know, utilizing independent cybersecurity rating services, right? So almost like credit scores for uh, cybersecurity credit scores for organizations. Right? So you can start building a profile of the things that you that you're going to inherit as the organ as an organization. Uh, then you want to obviously review previous controls and or maturity assessments if they've done any. If they haven't done any, do one. All right, so do a gap assessment, whether that gap assessment is against your own policies and standards, against a framework such as COBIT or NICSF or, or the, the critical controls or, or, or whatever you want, just do one so you understand kind of where they stand. Uh, take a look at uh, previous vulnerability assessments and pen test reports. If they don't have any, that's probably a red flag. Uh, but I think Caroline, you probably know a company that can help out with that. <laughs> um, and then you want to analyze their documentation, right? Do they have a security charter? Do they have a security plan? Do they have a roadmap? Do they have policies, standards, procedures? If so, what do they look like? Um, 
do any certifications exist, right? Are they a SAS? You know, what do their stock two reports look like? Um, or have they been fed ramped? If so, what do their fed ramp attestation documents look like? That sort of stuff. And then any metrics that, and you know things about metrics as well, any metrics that have been uh, generated as part of their security program, uh, any board presentations, what are they communicating to the board, public disclosures, if they're a public, either a public company or they've had a breach large enough uh, to require a public disclosure. And then what's the workforce strategy going to be, right? So meaning you have a bunch of people on your security team, assumingly they have a security team, that security team may be a team of one, right, depending on the size of the organization. But understand that the acquired company security team, they know where all the skeletons are buried, right? So you need to engage them as part of the M&A process um, to really foster that openness and the transparency between the two organizations. And then, again, you want to prioritize uh, remediation efforts and integration efforts based on, I'm gonna go back to the term risk to revenue, right? Where is the greatest risk to revenue? And again, to understand the risk to revenue, you have to have a relationship with the business. So now on the flip side, right? If you're the acquiree, right? You're probably nervous. You're, you have a bunch of uncertainty. Um, do I have a job? You know, all of the above, right? So, as a leader, right, if you have a team under you, just understand that that uncertainty or anxiety about the future is going to lead to a significant drop in motivation for your team, right? So your influence might vary, uh, and it really depends on, quote, unquote, how on board you decide to be. I recommend as a, as a leader, decide very quickly if you're going to be on the integration train or not, right? As um, you know, we're in the cybersecurity industry. If you decide to jump off the train early, just look at any article that talks about the cybersecurity shortage, you'll be just fine, right? But opportunities exist, right? Opportunities exist in the new organization. You just have to uh, be able to embrace change and quickly adapt to the new environment, right? You have to show that you're a valuable asset. So I am a big believer in uh, being a change leader when you're on that side of the fence, on the inquiry side of the fence, right? This is really more about uh, a people thing, right? Because the other organization is going to come in, they're going to implement their processes, procedures, most likely their technologies, all that kind of stuff, right? So how do you enable those changes? And you want to enable people and give them, you know, the, the authorities uh, required to make change. So this goes way beyond hey, suck it up, buttercup, you're the one who was acquired, right? Good change leadership needs everybody to do their part. It requires enablement by executive leaders uh, prior to the project team doing anything in regard to the actual delivery of the work. Uh, it then requires you know, support during the implementation phase, which is owned by everyone, executives, grassroots people, individual contributors, and everybody in between. So then you want to support the integration, clearly, right? So you want to agree on a clear framework of responsibility, accountability, uh, information, and decision rights between the two organizations. Right? It's uh, having been on both sides of the fence, it's critical for me to understand 
what the acquiring organization, CISO or leadership team wishes to delegate versus what, you know, they want to have the final say on, right? Because there's going to be a lot of stuff going on. I'm also a big believer in servant leadership. So look out for opportunities for your teams and your, and your employees. There's a great quote that I heard by Mark Schlereth, who's a former Denver Broncos great and, you know, football season, go Broncos. He said, great leadership is when you care about the people you lead more than you care about yourself. And I, I truly believe that to be the case. And in an environment like this where they're uncertain, um, they're anxious, right? Just, just, you know, show that you're there for them, open door policy, change leadership, be as transparent as possible. Understand that the speed of delivery of services to your business stakeholders, it will slow down. It doesn't matter if the acquiring company is more or less lean or agile than you, right? You now have this like huge monstrous integration project that you're working on while still trying to run a business. You will become resource constrained, so be prepared. Uh, and set expectations accordingly with the business. Again, it's about partnering with the business. Then, I mentioned this earlier, you want to be an asset, right? Offer critical, constructive, and committed advice during integration. I mean, you are the one with a thorough understanding of the company's business processes, right? The acquiring company is going to be looking at you for any documentation, data models, where the skeletons are buried, all that stuff. So it's, it's absolutely vital for the acquiring company to understand this. Uh, so that way, you know, you kind of know the, you know your environment better than they do, right? So you want to avoid integration-related business disruptions because they decided to make a firewall change that was quote-unquote no impact, however, it had very real uh, business impact, right? So it's very important to be 100% open and transparent. You know, the acquisition's kind of already happening at that, at, at that case. There's nothing to hide anymore, right? So... Uh, just be open and transparent. Awesome. Those are, those are some very cool insights. You know, the organizations that I've been a part of that are either acquiring or, or being acquired, you know, I personally was never kind of like on the M&A team. So I was always kind of like on the outside looking in, you know, with sort of curiosity about how that goes. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. That's kind of a cool, a cool insider's look on, um, you know, what goes on. Um, Rock, we've actually run out of time. Oh, wow. <laughs> no I told surprise. you that we could have had a we could have had our own podcast <laughs> on that one. Exactly, exactly. And what I'll have to do is I'll have to leave it as a teaser for our listeners because the question that I didn't get to ask you today is with regards to your love-hate relationship with regulatory compliance. So we'll have to save that one for a future podcast. Well, that's fine, and you could probably flip those words. The hate comes first. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right to me. Rock, thank yeah. you so much for, for being with us today and for sharing your experience and your thoughts with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. If you're interested in exploring additional resources mentioned in this podcast, you can sign up for our Humans of InfoSec recap at resource.cobalt.io slash humans of InfoSec. You can also find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen testing as a service company. Thanks for listening.